I will start with prayer, and then we'll jump into the study tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this evening, Lord. I pray that you will be honored and glorified, Lord, as we talk about you and your word uh, and the church, Lord. I pray that we will um, be able to rightly understand your word, Lord, and that we will rely on the Holy Spirit as uh, he teaches us all things and points us to your Son. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so tonight is a special night, really because it's the first week that we are now in a new era. We're, not any, we're no longer in the patristic era, uh, but now we're in the medieval era, as you can see on your note sheet. Um, so because that's true, I want us to kind of just quickly go over some of the major topics, things we've talked about. In the patristic era, uh, remember, reminder: just the patristic era is um, that first major part of church history after the first century, um, and you could see now the medieval era is really spanning at least how we have it a thousand years, uh, which is a obviously a a big portion of time. Uh, so, kind of like what we did for the patristic era during the medieval era for the next couple weeks now. I hope um, that we'll be able to just give a nice broad overview on some of these topics. Some of the people we'll be talking about will show up in um, some weeks, uh, several weeks. And I think that will just hopefully um, make things uh, come alive a little bit more as you learn a little bit more about different people in different contexts. And so that's what we did in the patristic era, and that's why I hope for us to do here as well in the medieval era. So you guys want to pass two of those back for them? <clears throat> All right, so quick review. Very first week we were here uh, for the semester, we talked just really overview what is historical theology. Um, and we talked about historical theology in relationship with uh, systematic theology, applied theology. Um, I thought that was just a good topic. We really talked about um, the aim of this study was ultimately uh, to grow in our knowledge and love for the Lord. Uh, studies like this is always, are always meant, at least in the Growth Institute, are always meant to be devotional to some um, aspect for us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So that's kind of like what we talked about first week. Second week, uh, Jason taught, and it was really within the first hundred years of church history, and we looked at um, the book of Acts predominantly. Um, Jerusalem Council, just how the church was established then. And so now here you can see in your note sheet, week three is when we started the patristic era. And we talked about the doctrine of Christ. Um, and so... I have on here two of the major councils that we talked about. If you could remember, again, just a quick overview, we talked about the first four ecumenical councils. Um, you can see I only have two here, though. I have the first one listed, the Nicene Council. And you see that happened in 325. And then I have the Chalcedonian Council, or the Council of Chalcedon. And that was that's considered the fourth. Uh, if you were not to remember any of the four, that's all right. But if you were to remember some, uh, these are the, probably the two most important ones for us to remember, the Nicene Council. 
in the Chalcedonian Council. Uh, the reasons for that, I mean, the Nicene Creed is um, a major uh, creed in the Christian faith. It's a really early uh, creed that we've looked at, we've spent some time looking at. Um, and if you remember, with the Nicene Creed, it was all about how do we understand the relationship between Christ and Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the Father. Does anyone remember the word that was used in that creed to refer to their relationship, to talk about how they relate to each other? I don't think I have it on here. I have, or I do have it on here, actually. Consubstantial, yes. So it's homoousios is the Greek term there that is translated as consubstantial, referring to the same essence as God the Father. And so this was obviously a big discussion. How does the Son and the Father relate to each other? This is what came out of the Nicene Council. And then uh, the fourth council, as I mentioned um, a bit later, the big thing to remember here is the Chalcedonian definition, also known as the hypostatic union. And you can see that there. Uh, does anyone remember what the hypostatic union is about? What is that talking about? Yeah, you're on the right track, and I know you're. Trying to remember how you worded it. Sure. Yes, exactly. So it's then talking about, well, how are we supposed to understand Christ, the person of Christ, more specifically in on him? Uh, The fact that he is God and the fact that he is man, how do those things relate to each other? And we looked at different suggestions, and they're listed on here. You can see um, and how they combated some of those uh, suggestions and they ultimately said the hypostatic union is referring to Christ and that he is, has two natures, divine and human, 100% God, 100% man, two distinct natures, but in one person. There's not two persons in Christ, right? It's not one nature mixed together, but it's two distinct natures in one person. And so that's what we learned in the fourth ecumenical council. So we talked about those things third week. Um, fourth week, then we transitioned a little bit more into the Trinity. Um, three persons, one essence. We really kind of looked back at the Nicene Creed um, for obvious reasons, just talking about how the Son relates to the Father, how do the distinct persons of the Trinity relate to each other. We looked at these three individuals here. Um, Pastor Sam taught on scripture and tradition. I thought that week was very valuable to really see how our scripture was put together. I think that's one of the major questions people have in the, in the church is, why do we believe this to be God's word? Um, we believe that God's word is authoritative. We, we believe that it is um, infallible, inerrant, it's sufficient for all things that we need in the Christian life. So it's important to understand and look back in church history to see 
why do we believe this is our scripture, not some of the other books that aren't included in our canon? So we talked about that. Um, Athanasius, I have his letter mentioned here um, under week five. Uh, this is an important document, if you remember, when Pastor Jason, or Sam, I should say, taught, uh, because in this letter by Athanasius, this is where we have the first list of all 66 books of our Bible in one concise list. There's many lists prior to Athanasius's letter here that we have, but they're not necessarily complete lists of all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, that doesn't mean it was not until um, 367, when our Bible was fully recognized. It was recognized well earlier, but this is just the first document that we have that lists all 66 books that we have and no other books. Um, and then lastly, uh, last week, week six, Jason then taught, Pastor Jason taught on the doctrine of salvation in the patristic era. We looked at Augustine versus Plagius. Augustine taught that we're born with original sin. Uh, so we're already born sinners in the sight of God, needing his salvation to save us. Plagius ta- taught that we're born neutral. Uh, so we talked a little bit about that. And then another major thing I think is important for us to remember is the substitutionary atonement that Jason brought out for us. How are we saved? We're saved by Christ taking our place on the cross for our sins. Right? He was our substitute, uh, and he atoned for the sins of his children there. And so uh, when Christ takes our place on the cross, we have union with Christ. Um, and that's just language we use uh, when we talk about our relationship with Christ now. Each one of us who has trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior has this true union with the Lord, with Christ himself. And this is why we're able to receive blessings, we're able to receive salvation, salva- salvation, um, and all those things. So Now, Medieval era. Um, I do want to say that this era is probably the, will be one of the more difficult ones to teach on. I think that might be true for not just myself, but maybe Pastor Jason and Sam. I'm not sure if Sam's teaching in this era. But the reason for that is because I think this is an era that many of us don't spend a whole lot of time studying compared to the others, at least. Um, But tonight, you can see, we're going to be talking about the church. And uh, hopefully that will help with the discussion. Hopefully we know a decent amount about the church, since we're part of the church uh, today, to help us with the discussion specifically about the medieval era. So let's start with this questions. I have a series of questions here for you all, and I want us to discuss these things before we dive into and see what um, people said about these things um, on the next page. But what slash who is the church? Who are its leaders? How is it governed? What are the sacraments slash ordinances, etc.? So I'm just really asking a bunch of questions on the topic of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology simply means um, the doctrine of the church, the teachings of the church. Um, Let's start with the first one. What is the church? If you were to define the church, 
what would you say the church is? All right, that's a really good good place to start. The church is the bride of Christ. Yes. Members who are believers. What was that? Members of the church, of the church, and they are the believers in the church. They're the believers. So they're, it's a bride of Christ who are believers. Yes. You can see at the bottom of the page here, I have part of the Nicene Creed specifically about the church, uh, Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Um, but is there any other thoughts? What is the church? Or you could get into some of these other questions here. Um, hospital for the sick. Hospital for the sick, yeah, spiritually sick. You could think of it that way. Right? We're all spiritually sick. If you want to go even a step further, we're all spiritually dead, right? And we need to be ultimately revived. Um, so... But yeah, that's that's good. <coughs> Anyone else? I mean, we could go in a million different directions with all these different questions I have on here about the church. Um, and there are different answers given to these questions, right? Depending on your denomination, depending on how you grew up. Uh, so for us as Baptists, um, how would we answer these questions? And even within the Baptist faith, there could be um, different answers potentially to these questions. We have like the deacons. I don't know if that is, um, you know, denomination specific, but yeah, you're right, deacons. So who? Um, are the leaders. Deacons is an office um, given to the church. Local church or broader church. When you say church, you have to have two separate elements. So it's Catholic. Like sure. Catholic church. Yeah, universal church. So we, the language that a lot of times we use today, right, is the local church versus the global church. Right? The local church would refer to First Baptist Church. That's an example of a local church. It's the visible church, the ones that the church that we could see. The global church is every believer of all time, all over the world. So, yeah. How is it going? Like, the broader church, I don't think, really is. Because there's denominations that all think different things. A lot of them are very similar, and they follow similar teachings, or beliefs, um, similar beliefs. And so those aren't necessarily governed. I think the first level that we are governed is the Southern Baptist Conference, or... Um, Convention. Convention, yeah. It's kind of the, the highest governing body, I believe. Sure. Well, what's special about us as specifically Southern Baptists, right, is we believe in the autonomy of local churches. Um, so how we govern ourselves ultimately is, I mean, the priesthood of believers, and we believe um, that every single believer is a priest in that sense where they have access to God, and so we don't necessarily have a governing select group. This is why we vote on things. This is why we um, work together on things as a church. Um, that's governing. And you can get into more details on how that actually looks practically. Um, 
some have just have elders and those are make bigger just some decisions so they're elected and yeah exactly some have elder boards that make all the decisions right um so let's uh talk about who are its leaders um when i was looking at the discussion that was happening in the medieval era there was two specific um topics that really came out as it relates to the church specifically, and that was leadership. And that's also, and the second one revolved around what we call, what we call ordinances, what's broadly understood as sacraments. So those are the two things I really want us to talk about tonight then. So let's first, for our purposes, identify who are its leaders. What would we understand as leadership within a local church? Your pastors. Pastors. Yes. Yeah, so pastors, deacons was mentioned earlier. Um, recognizing there's a difference between governing, right, and leadership or teaching ministry. Uh, so pastors, deacons, is there anything else that you guys want to add to that? Sunday school, your Bible study teachers are Sure. So there's All teachers in different roles. Yeah. Overall, I mean, not maybe formally, but. Can all be leaders in one sense and try to um, govern one another. Yes. <laughs> leaders in the sense, right, that we're all, uh, that the congregation governs the church, right? Because we all have access to God. Christ is in us all. We're all underneath the great shepherd, which is Christ himself. We're all governed under him. But then we see in the New Testament, um, there is leadership established, right, in the first century of the church. And that's where we see uh, what we call pastors, elders, deacons, and there's different roles. Um, And ultimately, these roles are meant to be roles of service to serve the church. Um, Elders, pastors are meant to serve the church, be servants of the church as they teach God's word. Deacons are meant to be servants of God's church as they do many practical types of ministries um, so these are some of the leaders of the church. Let's go now to the fourth question I have on here. What are the sacraments slash ordinances? We believe that communion and baptism is the two baptisms. Yep, yep. So communion, the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, and there's different names for it, and baptism, right? Those are the two. Within the Roman Catholic tradition, does anyone know how many sacraments there are? I don't know if it's Catholic, but there is foot washing and sign. There's marriage or something like that as a sacrament. There's seven of them. There's seven within the Roman Catholic um, tradition. So um, we have a lot less. (laughs) Right? We have two. And if you look at the history of this, you could see that this pope added these sacraments, this pope added these sacraments, and then it came to seven. Um, but Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, we're Baptists, and so we like to talk about baptism a lot, right? And we are to baptize those who profess Christ, uh, faith in Christ, right? Um, but tonight, we're going to talk more so, though, about the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. So tonight... Like I said, some the two major discussions I found, at least, in the medieval era 
revolving around the doctrine of the church was, what, are the leader, what does the leadership look like? How should the church be structured? But then also, how do we take the Lord's Supper? Um, what is the Lord's Supper? What does it mean? What does it signify? Um, all of those things. So you can see the first bit. We're going to be talking about the leadership of the church. Uh, so I thought it would be helpful for us just to pull out some of the passages that we would go to when we talk about um, offices within the church. When I say office, we're referring to officially recognized positions that God has established for leadership within a local church. Again, recognizing that this leadership isn't a leadership that's meant to um, act um, superior necessarily to anyone, right? These offices are for leaderships who are meant to be servants for the church, to serve the bride of Christ. Uh, so that's a crucial distinct, or understanding that we need to understand of leadership, biblical leadership. But let's look through some of these. Um, some of these passages you could see, like I have the third one here, First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Obviously, there's not seven verses listed there. Uh, but that's a passage you'd normally go to and you'd see all, look at all seven verses normally when you talk about that passage. But just for the sake of trying to condense it, uh, for our purposes, I left out a good amount. But you can look at these later. Um, but for what's at least on this page here, on page two, can I get some volunteers to read these? Uh, we'll do what we normally do when I teach. I'll ask our volunteers for each passage, and then we'll just read them in order and talk about them. So Acts 14, Lonnie. Ephesians 4. Who wants to do that? All right, Megan. First uh, Timothy 3, the first part of it. All right. First uh, Timothy 3, the second part of it. All right. Um, Titus 1 in the last bit there. All right, perfect. So we'll just read them in order, and then we'll talk about these different positions. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the unity of Christ. First Timothy. Timothy 3, 1-7, the saint is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above and beyond reproach. First Timothy 3, 8-13, deacons likewise must be dignified. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Titus 1, 5-9, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Okay. So how many different types of leaders, different titles, do we see in these passages? So let's start naming them. What are some of them? Elders, one. Apostles. Prophets. Apostles, prophets. Evangelists, shepherds, teachers. All right. Well, we'll see that shepherds and teachers, I think they kind of go together. Um, but that's beside the point. Let's continue. 
Anything else? Overseer. Overseer is another one. Deacon. Deacon. Did we get them all? One, two, three, four, five, What did you say? Saints. Saints. Where do you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To equip the saints. What was that? Stewart. Uh, that's in what verse? Titus. Titus. Okay. All right. So, I mean, and so we see some of these are descriptors of specific offices that are already listed. And so Stewart, I would say, right, goes under the overseer uh, descriptor there. Um, saints, we would refer to ultimately all believers in Jesus Christ. This is, again, why we believe the priesthood of all believers. Uh, so in the Ephesians 4 passage, there's um, titles listed specifically to equip the saints, referring then to the entire church, all those believers in Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, the traditional position uh, within the Baptist circles uh, that we would hold to as it relates to what offices are there within the church. Well, let's start with the Ephesians 4 passage. We would recognize the office of apostles has ceased uh, since one of the requirements to be an apostle is to see the resurrected Jesus Christ uh, by sight. And so we would attribute Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was converted on the road to Damascus as uh, one of the last apostles, right, at that time. So there's no more apostles. And apostles also had authority to write scripture. Obviously, none of us have authority to do that. Um, we have prophets. Um, there's a good discussion on prophets there that is in you know, wider Christian circles. Many times people might attribute prophets as ultimately speaking with authority on behalf of God. So sometimes within evangelical circles, someone could say they have the gift of prophecy, ultimately referring to their preaching itself. But you have to be careful if you say that because we don't want that to be confused with how prophets in the Old Testament acted, right? Where there's new revelation coming. Uh, we would recognize there's no new revelation from God, right? Because it was fully um, fulfilled in Christ and the fullness of God was revealed in Christ. So we don't need more revelation. So that's another topic. Um, evangelists, those who share the gospel, right? The reason why I really added this Ephesians 4 passage, though, is because of the last part here, shepherds and teachers. Uh, again, this is a big discussion on if we should distinguish these two or if they should kind of go together to try to describe the same um, office. But here we have the idea of pastor, right? Someone who shepherds the people of God. And as the New Testament continues and progresses, we see less apostleship and more um, pastorship, if you want to say it that way. Uh, those who shepherd God's um, people. And so, like I said, the um, recognized Baptist position, which I would hold on to, is I believe Scripture teaches or uses the terms elders, pastors, or shepherds, and overseer all synonymously. Uh, so they would be referring to the same position. 
uh, here. And one of the reasons I would at least say for elder and overseer as a certain position, you kind of see that in Titus chapter 1, where they kind of just like kind of go together describing the exact same office and what they're doing. So you see elder mentioned first, and then as the passage continues, it kind of goes to overseer. So I would believe that overseer, elder, pastor, they're all referring to the same official office. Uh, those who teach God's word, those who shepherd God's flock. Um, and then the other office, the official office, is are those of deacons, those who serve the church. And so really, I would argue that there's really only two offices that we would hold on to, elders and deacons. Uh, and then if you want to add a third one, then everyone else as saints, right? Church members. Um, so, like I said, that's the official position uh, that's more Baptistic. Um, what we'll see, though, as, when you look at this brief history here in a bit, that's not necessarily what uh, they um, believed. And we'll see how they understood some of these things. So, uh, let's look through this little bit right here. Ignatius of Antioch, you can see when he lived here. Uh, also, fun fact about Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, does anyone know anything about him first? Maybe someone knows this fun fact. Ignatius of Antioch. Has anyone ever heard of him before? Yeah? Know anything about him? No. Ignatius of Antioch is known to be a colleague or an apostle or a disciple of a guy named Polycarp. Has anyone heard of Polycarp? And Polycarp is known to be a disciple of Anyone know? The Apostle John, uh, who wrote a good part of our New Testament, the Gospel of John. We have um, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Uh, Polycarp is known to be, or by tradition, considered to be a disciple of John. And Ignatius of Antioch is also known to be a disciple of John, or disciple of Polycarp. Um, So there's some discussion on that, whether Ignatius is um, a disciple of John himself and just a colleague of of Polycarp or a disciple of Polycarp who was a disciple of John. But close connection, right, uh, to um, John himself, the apostle who actually had that office of apostle. All right, Ignatius of Antioch, obviously from Antioch, taught church leadership was threefold. So he wouldn't agree with us, which is interesting uh, since he was so close to, um, to the Apostle John, or, yeah, to the Apostle John. But he taught that there were, the leadership within church is bishop, presbyter, and deacon. So again, we recognize deacon here. Um, and if you look back at the texts that we just read, uh, the term overseer, is a term that would be translated as bishop. So you can understand where they got that term from. And the term presbyter, they would understand as what we, the term that we recognize as elder. So if you translate those differently. So they obviously wouldn't see overseer and elder synonymously. There's a little bit of a distinction um, that they would recognize. Bishop is simply a leader over a city, in a sense, and a presbyter or an elder would act more 
a leader of a, just a local gathering. And then deacons serve would, be the, would serve the same way that we understand them. So leadership threefold here. Congregations formed around cities, which makes sense, right? And eventually, by the end of the second century, the most powerful bishops were from the cities of Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, Jerusalem, and Rome. So as time went on, right, bishops became more of a prestigious uh, position. It was a big position within the church, uh, as in they're overseeing the the church or the churches in these large cities that were then run by um, presbyters and deacons and um, but let's continue with this. So we see those five major cities. Over time, Rome's authority grew, which we know. Uh, if you just understand, look at the Roman Catholic Church, right? Over time, Roman's authority grew, which led to Leo the Great. And you can see when he lived here, Leo wrote a letter here, uh, which lays the theological foundation for the papacy by looking at Matthew 16. 19. We've looked at Matthew 16, 19 a couple times, but let's turn really quick there again. So if you have your Bibles, sorry, I don't have this opened to that. Or I don't have it written down in your note sheet. But Matthew um, 16, 19 says... I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is Jesus Christ talking. Who is he talking to in this passage? The apostles, but then we see Peter specifically uh, here. If you look at verse 18, I should have started verse earlier. I tell you, um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So um, the Roman Catholics would argue that Peter was the first pope, right, who had the authority of God to um, bring heaven in a sense, here on earth with his rule and with his governing the church. Um, and ultimately that led to, as they would understand, the infallibility of the Pope, which we'll get to, and obviously we wouldn't recognize. Um, but you could see, if you just look at this early church history, time in church history, the bishops were the ones overseeing these cities, and as the bishops became more and more popular, these cities became um, larger and larger. They became more powerful because there wasn't a, dis- a distinction, a separation between church and state as we understand it today. right? And then the Church of Rome grew more powerful and then it ultimately came into the understanding that whoever the bishop of Rome was, is, they under- recognized as would become the Pope. Um, you could see Gregory, uh, Pope Gregory uh, the Seventh, and you could see when he lived here. Actually, I skipped Gregory the Great. Um, he's known as the first medieval pope. 
Um, has anyone ever heard of Augustine of Canterbury? Augustine of Canterbury. That's different of Augustine of Hippo, who we have been talking about um, a lot. Uh, Augustine of Hippo lived earlier. This Augustine of Canterbury. Does anyone know where Canterbury is? England, yes. So England, Augustine of Canterbury was a monk uh, who was one of the first missionaries sent to England to share the gospel. And he was sent under Gregory the Great. So you could see the time Gregory the Great lived, very early still. Um, this is when Augustine of Canterbury went to Canterbury and um, shared the gospel there. So you could see from very early the gospel went to England. Um, was there earlier before the fall of Rome, because that's after the fall of Rome. Yeah, so very, very early is when the gospel has been spreading. Um, so... Pope Gregory, though, the seventh, you can see when he lived here, uh, is really the time when people would attribute to the birth of the official papacy, um, recognizing the official pope position, uh, who's able to speak really on behalf of God in many different ways, as he is the leader of the church. Um, you can see here, I have written, believed the church to be her best when she was under the clerical control, so the control of the clergy, the control of the church leadership, he took measures to end the practice of lords appointing their own bishops, of enforcing celibacy, and although restoring, uh, and altogether restoring what they believed to be the New Testament ideal. So what was happening was different lords and different regions as Christianity spread Right, would appoint their own bishops, would appoint their own leaders within churches, and um, people such as uh, Gregory the Seventh would say, "Well, we need to have some more control on this. These people are becoming bishops, becoming church leaders that we don't know. We need to have control over this." And so um, he definitely would, uh, was a proponent to enforcing um, the church to be back in. Clerical control or control of the clergy um, instead of lords and others appointing church leadership. And so, like I said here, it's the birth of the papacy, taking that complete control. And then this isn't in the medieval time, as you can see, it's 1870. But I thought this was an interesting part to kind of bring it full picture. The Roman Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility did not receive an official declaration until Vatican I in 1870. Um, so what is that referring to, papal infallibility? Uh, that's ultimately recognizing the Pope um, as being infallible himself, not just the word of God, but the Pope himself. And so what he says um, is the same as Scripture. Means when he's speaking on and the official terms. Exactly. Sure. Yep. They would say. Yeah. So that's leadership within the medieval era. All right. Fifteen minutes left, and we'll go through the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharist as the centerpiece of the church service. So when we talk about the church. 
we should talk about, well, what did the church service look like? Like what we do on a Sunday morning, what did it look like? Um, for them, it really centered in on the Lord's Supper. They would take it regularly, all the time. And this was the main part of the service. For us today, what is the main part of our service? Sermon. The sermon, right? There, we have different elements of it, and we take the Lord's Supper, and we do baptisms, we sing. But really, it's meant to be centered in on the Word of God and the preaching of God's Word, because we believe ultimately, that this is where God speaks, and we want to hear God speak through God's Word. And so this is why our services center on the preaching of God's Word. Uh, But here, it really was centered instead on the Eucharist, on the Lord's Supper. Uh, But like what we did for the leadership, I want us to look at some of these passages and then do a brief history again here. So does someone want to read the Mark 14 passage? Mark 14. Um, you have Luke. The first one. Oh, Luke. Does it say Luke? There's no Mark 14. No. See, what I did is I made my sheet, and then I changed my mind of what passage I wanted to use, and I forgot to change it on my sheet. So I have your sheet here also. Yeah, so it says Luke. Luke 22.19. Who wants to read that one? All right, Luke 22.19. Um, and then the second one, I have the same on both streets here. First Corinthians 11. Let's read that one. All right, Nancy. So we'll just go in order again. We'll start with the Luke passage. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All right, Nancy, you can read the other one. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right. We recognize these passages because these are the ones that are normally read right before we take the Lord's Supper together as a church. Um, and so during the medieval era, one of the reasons why this was the main center piece of a church service is because um, they understood this to be really a means to receive God's grace. Um, and we will kind of see why as this is articulated in the brief history here. Uh, but we recognize, right, that we're justified by faith alone. We're saved by faith alone, uh, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And then that's justification. And then we continually grow in sanctification as we look to Christ, right? And we do the Lord's Supper as, uh, a symbol to represent um, the death of Christ on the cross and the spiritual reality of what that all entails. But for many, for many of these medieval believers, um, it was really a real 
tangible way for them to actually receive grace from God in the local church service. And then ultimately to um, become saved, to work towards their salvation. Uh, There's a lot more nuance in there, but we're not going to get into it all um, tonight. But you could see uh, one of the early controversies here uh, were between, is between uh, Radbertus uh, and Rats Ramnus. Uh, those are fun names. Uh, and you could see when they lived here. Uh, and I'll just read this really quick for us and uh, so we could kind of understand how they were forming the question and the discussion around the Eucharist. It says, In his work concerning the body and blood of the Lord, Radbertus followed Ambrose. So Ambrose lived earlier um, in the patristic era, including that the bread and the wine present in the Eucharist were actually converted into the body and blood of Christ. The bread was no longer bread, the wine no longer wine, even though they appeared the same. A miraculous transformation had occurred. The eating was that was done, however, was done spiritually and only among those who were true followers of Christ. Then on the other hand, right, we have the other guy, uh, Rat Ramnus, disagreed, uh, writing against his old master. So it sounds like Radbertus is his old master here. Uh, in concerning Christ's body and blood, he followed Augustine. So we see two different people in the patristic era that had influence um, in these medieval individuals and their understanding on the Eucharist. Um, he contended that while Christ's flesh and blood were mysteriously present in the bread and the wine, the elements remained precisely that um, as they were bread and wine. So we see the two different positions, which is actually interesting. Just a side note, Ambrose and Augustine... Does anyone know who baptized Augustine in the early church? It was Ambrose. Um, but here we see the different positions articulated, one from each of these men, even though uh, both of these men were um, brothers in Christ and one baptized the other. Uh, so this is really the big discussion. Uh, if you believe that you actually receive this grace from, the, from God, by partaking in the Lord's Supper, right? They believed you truly received this grace in that moment because we were truly, or they were truly, actually eating the blood and um, body of Christ. Um, the discussion continues. You would see the Fourth uh, Lateran Council of 1215. Uh, it was called to, this council was called by Pope Innocent III, uh, you can see here, as you're just following along with me on the notes, it says, there is one universal church. This is one of the, um, out of this council, there came a document of what they believed. And this, what we're about to read, is the first paragraph of that document. And you can actually put in the footnote where you can actually see the entire document that came out of this council. It says, there's one universal church of the faithful outside of which there's absolutely no salvation. Uh, so obviously they're talking about the Roman Catholic Church here. And this is, they would believe there's no salvation outside of it. 
In this church, the priest and the sacrifice are both the same, Jesus Christ. Uh, His body and blood are truly contained in the sacraments of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread is transubstantiated into the body, into his body, and the wine into his blood. Uh, by God's power, transubstantiated really is talking about how it's truly transformed. There's an actual transformation happening in how they would articulate it here. Uh, this is so that we may receive him, receive Christ, that he has received of us, our, what he has received of us in order to realize that mystery of unity. No one can affect the sacrament except uh, the duly ordained priest. So then he's, they say, well, only a priest could actually administer the Eucharist. All right, so let's talk about this paragraph. What elements in here um, would you really push back at? There should be a few. Um, what are some things that we would look at and say, oh, I'm not so sure about that, and why? It's the blood and the body of Christ. Okay. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And it's the remembrance. It's the remembrance. Because it says, do this and remember. It's not to receive grace. It says, do this and remembrance. Yeah. Does anyone want to add to that? I think he's really hitting, I mean, on the main issue. Right? And, and, And you can tell that most of these, the medieval, most of the popes and all these ideologies was to strengthen the church and a person. Was not meant to strengthen the gospel or focus on Christ. Sure. So you can kind of, when you look at these things and why we we went a separate way, uh, is because when we were looked back and we go, yeah, this really looks like it's, it would be what a man would make. Mm. Versus, they're not sacrificial. The popes were not the kind that were doing anything. They were the kind of kiss my ring kind of person. That was the opposite of the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. You know, so all they did was say, oh, only we could do this. Only this guy could do that. This is this is very mystical. We sure. have the mystical. We got the oil that you need to buy. Yeah, right. And that's very much the opposite of what we stated earlier at the beginning. In what is biblical leadership? Right. It's biblical leadership are those who serve the church. They're not the ones that like, oh, kiss my ring, as you mentioned, as you said. Um, so yeah, that's that's true. Uh, and also. Um, like we saw earlier, right, so with, which Gregory was it? Um, Gregory the Great. Um, I, no, uh, Gregory the Seventh. There was really a, this control wanting to preserve the true, authentic church. And so that's why they would say anything, anyone outside of it is not saved, right? And so by preserving it, they needed to be the ones to pick the bishops. They needed to be one to uh, ordain the priests in order to really regulate these things. And one of the ways to, they regulate it as well is to keep Scripture and the preaching of Scripture really in Latin when it was done, which really wasn't the language that many people even spoke. So most people didn't even understand uh, 
um, scripture at all. Um, so that were some of the issues that was happening here. Side, we get so loose with everybody interpreting. That's why we have so many hundreds of denominations. I know. I mean, we'll so, get to the Reformation <laughs> then, and we'll see why we needed a Reformation from these things, right? And then how that caused then uh, ultimately many different, ultimately different denominations, and how it resulted in that. Um, all right, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I feel like I can't really get by without at least mentioning him in this section. Uh, He's probably the most well-known individual in this era of church history. Uh, He has contributed a lot on the understanding of the Eucharist, uh, not in what we would say a favorable way. (laughs) Um, And it's very complex, and so we're not going to necessarily get into his articulation of uh, how the elements are transformed and what all that entails. But I wanted to at least put this quote here that he articulated to at least hear some of their heart behind of why they would confess that they truly believe the bread and the wine transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And for them, at least how he, Aquinas articulates it here, is uh, they wanted to be faithful to what they understood Scripture to be teaching. So um, I just wanted to at least be fair and show, um, even though we wouldn't agree with it, um, uh, a response that we could at least sympathize with. He says, The presence of Christ, Christ's true body and blood, in the sacrament cannot be detected by sense nor understanding but by faith alone. And he's saying that they were truly transformed, right? In order for us to truly receive the grace of God. Uh, But then as he continues, which rests upon divine authority. Hence, on Luke 22, 19, we read that passage. That's one of the reasons I want us to read it. This is my body, which shall be delivered up uh, for you. And then he quotes an early church father, here, Cyril says, uh, Doubt not whether this is tr- this be true, but take rather the Savior's words by with faith. For since he is the truth, he lieth not. And so you see a lot of early church fathers. We can under- at least sympathize with the sentiments of it, even though we don't necessarily agree with the conclusion of it. Because sure. Jesus said, you're the rock. Yeah, yeah. So this is why hermeneutics ultimately really is important. And we talked about hermeneutics in one semester, right? How we understand and interpret scripture. Um, we're, they're trying to be faithful to scripture where Jesus says, this is my body. Uh, eat and uh, remember, as we, I said earlier. And so they were trying to be faithful to scripture in that regard. All right. So those are the two things for tonight. Um, I guess just a few takeaways uh, is what we do um, as a church, right? We should be intentional with it. Uh, Ecclesiology, as I stated earlier, is a doctrine of the church, uh, which answers questions such as all the questions we answered in the beginning, is theological. And we need to have theological reasons 
Uh, there are theological reasons for the, way, for the reasons we do things, and they um, are to be found in Scripture. Uh, who are the leaders in the church? How is the church um, to be governed? Right? What are the sacraments or the ordinances? We use the term ordinances, really, technically, instead of sacraments, because we don't believe baptism in the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Um, but we do them to uh, remember and to... Um, Obey God's commandments, but yes. With our discussion about leadership, I think just with when we have our when we have congregationalism, when we have the elder-led congregational ruled structure, it's actually it's just really freeing for the average church member. It's nice you have that good balance. You have elders, you know, pastors, overseers who fit the First Timothy model. They've been called to that position. You need to be able to teach. And then you have the congregational rule part, which is where members' meetings come in, and we vote. But we're, we're called—we're we're not called to lead. We're, we're called not to lead. We we have a responsibility to be aware and participate, and we have a responsibility to make sure our church is behaving in a way that is biblical and faithful. But yeah. the fact that we can kind of like put a lot of trust and rest on the elders, pastors, overseers, leadership—I think is just really freeing for the average church member to be able to follow that. Sure. That's encouraging. But then it's also freeing for the pastor and the overseer in the sense that it's not all on them either, right? As in, they're not governing this whole church on their own, and it shouldn't be that way. Each God has given us all different gifts in order for us to work together as the one body of Christ, right? To fit perfectly together in order to work as a healthy church. So this is why we need each other, right? And so therefore, when we rely on each other, ultimately, under the great shepherd of Christ— um, it all works out perfectly. No, not always perfectly. But all right. Any other final comments about anything from tonight? All right. Well, I'll close this out in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you, and again, we thank you for this discussion. Lord, uh, ultimately, we desire to know more about you, Lord. We want to be faithful to your word, Lord, because we recognize your word is um, the true source of authority, Lord. Uh, we want to bend everything in our lives, Lord, to your will, which is revealed in scripture, Lord. And we thank you that we have the help of your spirit, Lord, and uh, we are ultimately saved through your son, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of your son, Lord. We thank you that we are able to be called sons and daughters.